Good morning, everyone, and big thank you to Rhonda and Cindy and the worship team for leading us in those um, melodious songs that really um, extolled God for who he is. It's a delight to see all of you, and to those of you who are with us for the first time, we certainly welcome you and trust that your worship experience with us will be very, very enjoyable. There are times from time to time that we have bad days. Am I right with that or not? I'm told that you can know that you're going to have a bad day when some of the, the following things that I'm going to share with you in fact happen. You know you're going to have a bad day when your wife says, good morning, Bill, and your name is George. <laughs> when the manufacturers recall your pacemaker. When your husband forgot your birthday or anniversary. Oops. <laughs> when your boss tells you, don't bother take off your coat. When you wake up and your braces are locked together. <laughs> now the father in today's text is having a bad day. As are his son and the disciples of Jesus to whom they look for help. Now, the man's son is in the grasp of an evil spirit who has him under a spell of convulsions. And Jesus' disciples are having a bad day because they can't do anything, it seems, to help the man or his son. Now, this is all happening one day after his disciples had seen Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the presence of the glory of Jesus. And they are confronted with this issue that they can't do anything, it seems, to uh, help the man and his son about. Our text is in Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 43. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and be with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. It is perhaps no surprise for me to say to us this morning that our life consists of both mountains and valleys. Both mountains and valleys. On the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Now the slide you're going to look at behind me, if it is now projected, and it is, isn't that, a, isn't that a, just a beautiful island? That is my island. Island of Nevis. And as you look at it, you can see that it is 
overshadowed, if you will, uh, by this huge volcano that sits in the middle of the island, and it slopes all the way down to the coast. Now, if that doesn't get your interest peaked up to travel there and vacation, I don't know what else will. Uh, but I'm not, selling, I'm not selling an advertisement from that. But at the base of the volcano is this, this steep, grassy knoll. And uh, as boys, we loved to go up to the top of that hill, and we would take a coconut branch and make it into a, a makeshift sled, and we would sled all the way down to the bottom before doing it again. Now, life is like that. Life can be like that. Sometimes you are on the mountain where the experiences that you have there are like no other. Where life couldn't be better. And then there are those valley experiences where life couldn't be any worse. Life is lived mainly in the valley, not on the mountaintop. We were not designed to live on the mountaintop. Sooner or later, we have to come down. And so the next day, Luke tells us, the day after the disciples had been on this mountaintop with Jesus and had, had had this very beautiful experience, they came down to a crowd that met them in the valley. I don't know how many of you know this song by Amy Grant. I used to love to hear it way back in the 80s. Uh, the, the chorus goes something like this. I'd love to live on the mountaintop, fellowshipping with the Lord. I'd love to stand on the mountaintop because I love to feel my spirit soar. But I've got to come down from the mountaintop to the people in the valley below, or they won't know that they can go to the mountaintop of the Lord. The mountaintop experiences can be very, very great, but they don't last. Sometimes God fills our lives with immeasurably, immeasurable joy when our marriage couldn't be better, when we couldn't be prouder of our children and their accomplishments, when our health couldn't be any better when the economy couldn't be stronger and our assets couldn't be any healthier. All of these are blessings that God allows us to have. And we need not be guilty about them because as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, we are to enjoy them and thank God for them. Whenever God allows us to have these kinds of mountaintop experiences, we should be thankful for them. And we should, we should enjoy them. But we should also note that these times are never permanent. Sooner or later, we will, in fact, be allowed to experience things and experience life in the valley. Sooner or later, a cloud of sadness comes out of nowhere and sweeps over us. A misunderstanding creeps into our marriage and brings distance between us. Our children make choices that disappoint us. A health scare threatens us. Inflation steals the economic gains that we've had. Sooner or later, we must come down to the valley. 
But here is what I know from God's word. And I know this, and I'm glad that I know this. This is what I know. Our valley cannot separate us from the love of God. Cannot. Our valley cannot make God cease to be gracious toward us. God is immeasurably more in our valley. Now, I love Courtney Dunn's way of ending her emails. I, if you get her emails, you would see how she ends them. She ends them by speaking about a God who is immeasurably more. I love that line. And so she says, believing in the God who is immeasurably more. That's, that's the line that she used to end, uses to end her emails. The point I want to emphasize here is this. Whether on the mountaintop or in the valley, God is immeasurably more. And we can trust him. We can trust him. Here's our second point this morning. Our valley must never steal our ability to cry out. This is what Luke tells us. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he forms at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. I want to ask you this question. Do you recognize the name of this valley in which this man is? I believe that every parent of every child knows this valley. You've lived there. We have lived there. It is called the Valley of Desperation. This man's only child, a son, is in the grip of an evil spirit who afflicts him, who convulses him, into a series of epileptic fits who torments him day and night. In fact, there's another account, the, the account of uh, Matthew that tells us this, that the evil spirit throws him in the fire at times and then again in the water at other times. So this man is in the valley of desperation. This father, as he's in that valley of desperation, does something that all parents, especially Christian parents, can do, but often fail to do. This is what he does. He cries out to Jesus for help. Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. Now, desperation is what we feel when nothing else works. Have you ever been there? When nothing else works. I have found in my life, and maybe you have found in, in, found in your lives as well, that we only beg when we are desperate, when nothing else works, when there is no cure, when our resources have run dry, when there is no solution. That's when we beg. Because, you see, begging is a humiliating thing. None of us likes to beg. Am I right with that or what? None of us likes to beg, even if we need that particular thing. It is humiliating to have to beg somebody else. I don't know of any right-thinking person who likes to beg. Our pride just will not allow us to beg. But you know, desperation has a way of making us put away our pride 
and beg. Now, I am convinced that I know why we don't do more spiritual begging. It is because we're not yet desperate. We are not yet desperate. We have not yet become poor in spirit, as Jesus says. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. We are self-sufficient. We can still take care of ourselves. We still have the best insurance that money can buy. We can still pay our bills. We still have enough of a cushion to offset a threat of inflation. We aren't yet desperate. Everybody has gotten so quiet on me. I hope it's because you're in agreement with me. We're not yet desperate. When we are desperate, we have no other option but to beg. And an old preacher used to say, and I quote him, the tragedy of our time is that the situation is desperate, but the saints are not. Came across a story, a little funny story by uh, about a little boy named Johnny. And you can tell in the story that Johnny was desperate because he wanted a bicycle for Christmas and he approached his parents and asked his parents if he could have a bicycle. His parents wanted to teach him a, a lesson about prayer and about asking God for things. And so they said to him, well, Johnny, why don't you go and write a letter to Jesus and ask him to give you a bicycle? Now, obviously, Johnny was not pleased with the response, and so he threw a tantrum, which caused his parents to, um, you know, send him to his room for a timeout. And once Johnny got to his room, he sat down, and he thought, and he said, well, maybe I should just go ahead and write this letter to Jesus. So he did. And so he starts this, the letter this way, dear Jesus, I have been a good boy this year and would love a new bicycle. Can I please have one? Your friend, Johnny. Now, it suddenly hit him that he had not really been a good boy all year. And so he ripped up the letter and gave it another try. Dear Jesus, I've been an okay boy this year. Can you give me a bicycle? Yours truly, Johnny. And then he thought to himself, well, that's not honest either. So he tore it up and he tried again. Dear Jesus, I've thought about being a good boy this year. <laughs> Can I have a bicycle? And then he decided to crumple that letter up because he suddenly had an idea. He, re he remembered that downstairs, his parents had a nativity scene. So he goes downstairs and takes the statue of Mary from the nativity scene and hides it under his bed. And then he writes Jesus this letter. Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again, <laughs> you will give me a bicycle. Now... That is desperation. That is a guy who is desperate. If you ever want to see your mother again, give me a bicycle. <clears throat> that is desperation. And so this man, this father in the story, he is desperate. Jesus, look at my son. He's my only child. I believe that every parent here this morning can relate to this cry, to this cry. Jesus, look at my son. You never want to lose any child, much less a son, an only son. No parent here this morning wants to watch their child in the grip of something that is destroying them. 
I feel especially burdened this morning to speak to parents whose children have played into the hands of the devil and who are in his grip. In his grip. Children whose life choices grieve your heart because their lifestyle does not reflect how you trained them, how you raised them. I want to say to you this morning, become desperate. Become desperate. Let your desperation make you beg Jesus, if that's what it takes, to save your son, your daughter, your grandchildren. Don't be ashamed to beg Jesus for his help. Cry out to Jesus. Who knows, even before you come to the end of your cry, Jesus may rebuke the devil's stronghold over your child and give them back to you, saved, healed, and delivered. Look at what Luke tells us. While he was coming, his cry was not even done. While he was coming, while he was in the process of coming to Jesus, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Are you desperate for your children, even those who have made choices that grieve your heart? Here's our third and final point this morning. There is a power that is only accessed by prayer and fasting. This is what the gentleman, the father, says to Jesus as he comes to him. I begged your disciples to cast him out, to cast out this evil spirit, but they could not. And those four words, but they could not, they always get to me. They all, I think it's a very haunting foreboding of what it is to be a child of God, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and lack the power to do things in his name. They always get to me, but they could not. And so here is this father in a moment of desperation coming to Jesus' disciples, begging them to free his son from the devil's grip, but they could not. I want to ask you this morning, how equipped do you feel as a disciple of Jesus Christ to deal with people who come to you in the valley of desperation, in need of spiritual help? How equipped do you feel to help them? Do you often have to pass them on to somebody else? Or can you equip them yourself? The disciples didn't even realize that they were ill-equipped to help this man. They didn't realize why they were ill-equipped. We have to turn to the Gospel of Mark to find out why. Because Mark will let us in on a deep, dark secret. And I want you to promise me that when you hear this deep, dark secret about why these men these disciples couldn't help this man. I want you, when you hear that, to promise me that you will never, ever forget this deep, dark secret. Mark chapter 9, verses 28 to 29. And when he had entered the house, that is Jesus, after he had healed this um, man um, and freed him from demon possession, uh, and when he had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, and here is a deep dark secret, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
What a question to ask, first of all. Why couldn't we not cast him out? This question is an admission of failure on the part of the disciples, ministry failure. They had failed to demonstrate the power of God when it was most needed. Why had they failed? Because they had not tapped into God's power through prayer to do this kind of ministry. Now notice what Jesus says. Jesus' response to them is this. This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. I believe that Jesus is saying two things here at once. First of all, he's saying that there is a kind of ministry that responds to nothing else but us getting on our knees and praying, praying to God for it. I can't preach my way into it. You can't worship your way into it. We can't disciple ourselves into it. We can't blame or fault find a way past it. The only thing it will respond to is prayer and sometimes fasting. I believe that's the first thing that Jesus is saying. There is a kind of ministry, and the only way in which you will be equipped to handle it is through prayer. I think the second thing that Jesus is saying is that the power for this kind of ministry is available to us. It's not off limits to anybody. It is at our disposal. We all, as disciples of Jesus, can tap into it, but we must do it through prayer. Now, will I, would I be incorrect if I said to you this morning that there are some things that we long to see God do in our church? That we long to see our church grow well past 100. Amen. And we long to see people get saved in our church by the dozens. And we long to see people return to church who haven't since COVID. And we long to see addictions broken, sicknesses healed, relationships restored, don't we? But I'm afraid that we all, we have it all wrong. We do. We don't need some new strategy. We don't need more exciting worship, and God knows that you're doing the best that you can do, Rhonda. We don't need more dynamic preaching, and God knows that Pastor Ben and I are doing the very best that we can do. Here's what we need, plain and simple. We need more begging. Can I say that again? We need more begging. Beggars are notorious for one thing and for one thing only. They know how to beg. You don't need to teach a beggar to beg. He knows instinctively how to beg. I believe that we must, we must be notorious for begging for pouring out our hearts to God in desperation, begging him to let these things happen in our church that we just went through a while ago because they won't happen otherwise. They won't happen through worship that is more exciting. They won't happen through preaching that is more dynamic. And yes, there's, there's nothing that says that worship shouldn't be dynamic and preaching shouldn't be dynamic. But that is not what will make these things happen. It is our begging. 
Jesus himself says, there's a kind of ministry that only happens through prayer. So here's the bottom line of our message this morning. Why try something else if Jesus already gave you the strategy? If he already says, this is how these things are going to happen, why try to come up with some new strategy to make them happen? He's already given us the strategy. Prayer. I want to end with these three points this morning. I want to say to you this morning, thank God for your ups and your downs. Seems like a simple point. Thank God for them. Because there are times when you're going to be on the mountaintop, and maybe you are this morning, and the view is excellent from there, and life is exhilarating from there. Thank God for it. Don't feel guilty about being on the mountaintop. If God allows you to be there, it is something to celebrate and to be thankful about. Enjoy it. But remember that it won't last. Sooner or later, you will come down to the valley, and in the valley, life is difficult and painful. However, don't become bitter at life and at God. There are some Christians even who are bitter. They're bitter at life and they're bitter at God. Don't be. Thank God for the valley because you see, as one writer says, in the valley, he restores my soul. And he will do that. Secondly, I want to ask you this morning to ask God to give you a holy desperation. If you are satisfied with how things are in church, then that is complacency. Amen. If you are satisfied, then that is complacency. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit means that those people are dependent upon God for everything. They're desperate. One of the prayers that we have been praying in prayer meeting on Thursday nights, as recently as two weeks ago, was to ask, remember, remember I shared with you some time ago that there are 40,000 people in Greenfield who don't go anywhere? We have been asking God to give us at least 1%. At least 1% of 40,000. Gary Tedrow raised that prayer two weeks ago. And we have joined him in that. I want to challenge us this morning to join in that prayer that God would send us 1%. That's, it seems like a small amount, but that's 400 if God sent us 400 people, then this would mean that uh, we have to do church differently. We have to get more workers to serve in discipleship. We have to get more people to shepherd and pastor. Um, but God can do it. There's nothing that is too hard for God to do. Join us this morning in praying that God would send us 1% of that 40,000. Ask God to do extraordinary things among us on Sundays. Ask God to make Brown's Chapel a beacon of hope for people who are living in the valley of desperation. I believe that there is a power that we are failing to tap into because we are not yet desperate. Ask God to make us desperate as a church, to give us holy desperation. Here's a third and final application point this morning. Don't miss the next prayer meeting. I'm told that a young woman who was in love 
Her heart soared as her boyfriend boasted to her over the phone of how much he loved her. And he was waxing eloquent about the fact that I'll climb the highest mountain to get to you. I'll swim the deepest ocean to get to you. I'll even cross the widest valley to get to you, my love. Nothing is too great to keep me away from you. And imagine how her heart sank because this is how he ended the conversation before hanging up. I'll see you tomorrow if it doesn't rain. <laughs> imagine that. After boasting of all this stuff, a little rain was going to keep, her, keep him, I'm sorry, from seeing his love. I want to say to us this morning that your love for Jesus is only strong as your love for his church. I don't care how much you boast about loving Jesus. If you don't love his church, and if you don't love his church enough to be crying out for God's glory and his power to be manifested in the church, you don't really love him. Your love for Jesus is only as strong as your love for his church. And your love for Jesus is best expressed by crying out to him for his church's well-being and for his power to be manifested and displayed in his church. Amen? I want to close with these few points on the importance of a pastor leading his church to pray together. These points are taken from the book called And the Place Was Shaken, it's a book that I want to buy for our prayer, um, the team, the, the church, the, I'm sorry, the group of folk that meet here on a Thursday night. Not that prayer is only open to these the people in this group, but I want to purchase this book for us all. These are about five um, points that John Franklin, who wrote the book, and the place was shaken, uh, says that pastors should do in leading their congregation to pray. He says, by leading your church to pray together, you will engage them in the most important practice of the Christian life. So again, as far as he's concerned, the most important practice of the Christian life is not necessarily worship, as good as worship is, or discipleship, as good as discipleship is, evangelism, as good as evangelism is, but praying together. Secondly, by leading your church to pray together, you will encourage those you lead to stay in a love relationship with Jesus Christ. Thirdly, by leading your church to pray together, you will increase the likelihood of your church staying on God's agenda. Four, by leading your church to pray together, you will be practicing the means through which God has chosen to work. Fifthly, if your church wants to see a spiritual awakening and a reversal of the moral cesspool around you, you must have fervent, intense prayer meetings. Sixthly, if your church wants to see the power of God in supernatural ways so that, un I'm sorry, so that believers are renewed and the lost come under the conviction of sin, then you must lead your people to pray together. Seventhly and finally, there is nothing equally important to praying together save repentance and the word. I want to say to you this morning, don't miss the next prayer meeting. It is this Thursday at 7 o'clock. 
Only when we do this will we be able to do that. Let us pray together. Spirit of the living God, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you, God, for speaking to our hearts this morning. And Lord, with the same readiness with which you spoke, it's the same readiness that we express the willingness to obey and do the things that you're asking us to do. Father, we pray. We pray, God, that our church will grasp the importance of praying together. Not so much, Lord, that our personal needs will be met and our family needs will be taken care of. These are important, Lord, but so that the glory of the Lord is manifested in the church through the amazing supernatural things that only you can do. So God, we pray that you'd grant us a spirit of prayer, willingness to pray together, to be vulnerable to one another, to really become the church that prays together so that we might stay together. And God, we're asking this morning publicly that, Lord, you would grant this prayer of sending us at least 1% of the 40,000 people around us who are not in church this morning. We ask, God, that you'd give us a holy desperation to pray that you would move on the hearts of people who do not know Christ to come to know Jesus in a personal way. Again, Lord, we thank you for this church. Thank you, God, for what it represents. Thank you for its rich history. Thank you, Lord, that it's, it's based on a solid foundation. But Lord, we thank you also for the future of this church. Because we believe, Lord, that the future story of this church is not yet written. But you will do amazing things as your people fall on their face and cry out to you for your intervention. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.